Before I get into my message this morning, I have uh, just two things I want to note to you. Actually, I'm going to note uh, one thing to you and one thing to somebody very special in my life. So the thing to you is that uh, next Sunday, we are having our annual All About Him Sunday. And this is a special Sunday at our church. We focus on the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Uh, we've done this, I think this is our 24th annual, so this is, we're approaching a quarter century of doing it, and it's going to be a real, uh, a very wonderful Sunday. Hope that you can participate either online or come to uh, indoor, outdoor service, and uh, it's going to be a great Sunday. So just highlighting that to you. The other thing is I'm highlighting to my wife, Jennifer, that uh, Tuesday is our eighth anniversary, and I just want to thank you for marrying me. Okay, so I'm just noting that. Thank you for marrying me. Well, Paul's letter to the Romans has unveiled the gospel of Jesus in a level of richness and a level of depth that we can only say is glorious. It's been a wonderful two and a half years exploring chapters 1 through 11 as the Apostle Paul, in a way un, un, uh, better than anywhere else, explains to us how God makes sinners righteous. We get to chapter 12, and we have this wonderful transition of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, in which the Apostle Paul moves from the explanation of the gospel to the application of the gospel. Chapters 1 through 11, there's a lot of things that make you go, hmm. Chapters 12 through 16, there's a lot of things that make you go, ouch. And for, for, for sinners, we, we, we actually might be more comfortable with chapters 1 through 11 because it's ethereal, it's theological, uh, it's, it's knowledge. But you get to chapters 12 through 16, and he begins to step on our toes. He, in fact, he stomps on our feet. Today's text is a stomp on our feet type of application. And this is how Paul's letters often go. You can read Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, etc. And he begins with doctrine, and then he moves to the application of the doctrine. And so we are now in the so what chapters of Romans. The do this in real life chapters of Romans. And what we find here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, is that the Apostle Paul is uh, telling us that the gospel of Jesus rightly believed and applied, compels Christians to be excellent citizens in the country, in the nation that they live in. Indeed, perhaps the best citizens to be found in that country should be the Christians. Now, in one sense, we are all theoretically for good citizenship, right? We all, yes, this is all part of what it means to be a good Christian. You know, as long as the government is doing things the way that I like, and asking me to do things that I agree with. But if the current Caesar isn't the one I like, or if Caesar requires me to do something that I don't want to do, then I'm no longer thinking citizenship, now I'm thinking revolution, right? Revolution. We often think to ourselves, and in some ways this is almost American, you know, down with authority, down with Caesar, you can't tell me what to do. But you'll read uh, Romans a long time before you find Paul uh, commending that approach to governing authorities over us. What's noteworthy is that Paul is writing to a very anti-Christian, pagan 
city of Rome, Christians living not in some sort of uh, utopic uh, picture of what the new heaven and earth will be like. No, they are living in an incredibly pagan, immoral culture led by unbelievably pagan and sexually immoral and corrupt Caesars. And in spite of that, here is what he writes. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, I would ask for an amen, but I'm not sure I'd get a solid one, particularly that last verse. But we're going to explore this together and understand why this is also part of God's plan, God's good plan for us. So last week we looked at this from the perspective of what is the role of government? We use that word, uh, you know, we listen to talk radio, we watch the news, and we could assume everybody has a biblical theology of what God intended government to be. No, 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 not at all. And so we highlight from this perhaps the best text, along with Jesus, render to Caesar the things of Caesar, God things are God's, the best explanation of a Christian worldview of government. And what we found last week was that government is called by God to do a couple things. Number one, it is to oversee society. Number two, it is to promote and approve what is good in that society. Thirdly, it must restrain and punish evil in society. That's God's design for government. Now you might say, wait a second, I thought there was government, think government was supposed to do a whole bunch of other things than that. Well, you can argue the point, but biblically speaking, this is the bare minimum of what a biblical human government should do. We saw from Genesis that even if there was no sin, there would be human government. We see a governance within the Godhead. We see uh, a, a governance plan within Every realm that God creates, so family and church, etc., there's governance. The new heaven and the new earth will have governance. The perfect sinless angels have governance. So we take from this that governance or government itself is not the problem. The problem is always sinners governing sinners that is the problem. Unfortunately, we never have angels running for public office. And some of us wouldn't vote for them if they did, if they were in the wrong party. So this is true today, and it was true at the time that Paul writes the letter to Romans. And this is where I think context is so helpful in understanding how very, uh, uh, you know, let me backtrack, let me say it this way. If we looked, if he said, if he wrote this to Rome and we look at Rome, we find it being this you know, utopic situation. We're like, of course they love, they were happy to submit to those governing authorities over them. Their governing authorities were such wonderful people. We would say, well, it doesn't apply today. But we look back and actually it was the opposite of that. 
What was it like at Rome at that time? Rome was ruled by terrible, corrupt senators and emperors. They used taxation, get this, they used taxation to expand and enforce their rule over the world. It was an empire of slavery, idolatry, brute military force, and sexual immorality that would make Las Vegas blush. Just the kind of government you love to send your tax dollars to, right? Wrong. In spite of the corruption of Rome, Paul writes Romans 13 and highlights three responsibilities that all Christians have to the government that's over them. Okay, three responsibilities and then two whys. This is critical. Okay, so three whats, two whys. Here's the three whats. I'm gonna tell you what they are. We are to submit, we are to do what is good, and we are to pay our taxes. Here are the two whys. Because governing authority comes from God, and secondly, for the sake of conscience. So that's my outline. You'll see that as we move through here. But let's talk about all of these. What is a Christian's duty to the Caesar that is over them? And I, I want to preach this text like I would preach it here or in India or China or Russia. The truths are transcendent. You can apply it in different uh, forms of government, different situations Christians are in. These principles always apply. Number one, the text says that we are to be subject to Caesar. Look at verse one again. Let every person, notice the word every, okay? It's hard to wiggle on every, isn't it? You might think, I am the exception. No, you're not, okay? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, okay? So be subject, passive tense. The active would be submit. Some translations go with that. Uh, We might just use the word obey as a fair summary of what this word means. It It's a Greek word, it's actually a military term. It means literally to fall in line behind. And the imagery militarily is of like a military parade where you have the general or the colonel, whoever is at the head of the parade, and there you have all the ranks in line behind him or her. So as much as we wanna see some wiggle room here, Paul doesn't give us any. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. In other words, every person, any governing authority. Now you might say, well, that's just one verse. Maybe we got it wrong. Maybe it wasn't translated right. Certainly, this can't be what God's will is. Actually, Peter writes exactly the same thing. So here's a cross-reference, 1 Peter 2. Here's how Peter writes it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors. Emperor and governors here. And the list is not intended to be sort of like exhaustive. So you might say, well, I'd submit to the emperor, I'd submit to the governor, but the sheriff, no way, okay? I draw the line there. No, it's, it's from the top down, all government authority. Christians are called to be subject to. Again, Jesus was asked almost the same question, and we're gonna look at this in two weeks. They came to him, and the question was paying taxes to Rome. And they argued the point, and they, I mean, this was a huge divisive issue, and so they thought they'd give Jesus the hot potato. And they said, so should we pay taxes as Jews to Rome or not? And Jesus gives this answer, and it's one of these answers that only the Son of God could give. I mean, it's wonderful beyond words. He says, show me a Daenerys. And they pulled one out, and he said, whose image is on it? 
Caesar, he says, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And they walked away amazed at the wisdom of that answer. So all of these, Paul, Peter, Jesus, are consistently urging Christians to be law-abiding, Caesar-obeying citizens. Now, we're going to see in a future message that this applies to the realms within which God has intended Caesar to have authority, okay? We also believe that this means rendering to God what is God's, and we'll have more on that later. But submit is both what you do and how you do it, just like a child at home. You, you tell a child, I have to, I know this from experience, you can tell a child what they are to do, and if they stop away with anger and they go and do it, do we say, hey, well, look how submissive they are? No, it's not just the doing of it, it's also the attitude with which we do it. Submission. Elizabeth Elliot defines submission as the glad surrender, the self-surrender of my self-rule. That's what children want. They, want. they want to be Caesar of the home. Parents are called to make sure they know that they are not. They must surrender self-rule to mom and dad and align their attitude under governing authorities. And guess what? That's what we're called to do to the governing authorities that are over us. It is action and attitude. Now, don't hear this as merely a summons to obey the governing authorities that I like to obey the governing authorities that are leading in a way that I think this country should be led. No. Again, the context. Who are we talking about was actually the emperor at the time. Okay, we're not talking about that sort of utopic leadership under King David, the man after God's own heart. We're not talking about, you know, when Moses was faithfully uh, leading the people of God. We're not talking about King Solomon and the Solomonic wisdom with which he governed. No. You know who was the... Caesar, when, when Paul wrote this letter, not so Nero. And if you read the story, not so is actually a compliment to him because he was a maniacal emperor of the world at that time. And especially he hated the Jews and he hated the Christians. And that was largely because they were monotheistic religions and of course, they were promoting the worship of the emperor. Later on, Polycarp, famous church father, will refuse to say that Caesar is Lord and he, his life is taken from him. They promoted the worship of the emperor. They promoted, you've heard of the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. It was a polytheistic, secular, kind of a, uh, a, a weird merging of politics and religion and the worship of the emperor. Nero loved that, of course, and hated people who spoke against it. And so therefore, the monotheistic religion of the Jews or the monotheistic religion of Christianity, he hated that, especially Jesus Christos Kyrios. Jesus is Lord, give me a break. I'm the emperor, I'm in charge around here. And so from that then, we know that one of the, among the things that Nero would do is he would, he would literally throw the Christians to the lions in the Colosseum. I've been to that Colosseum in Rome. There's a giant cross big, huge metal cross in that uh, Colosseum, memorializing all the Christians who died in that very place. Ironic, we have it on the, on the screen. You might look at that and, and see it as a beautiful piece of architecture, and it is, but it's also a place of tremendous martyrdom. 
Nero would capture Christians and impale them along the main streets and light them on fire. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs to hear the terrible things that Nero would do. This is, this is the crazy guy. This is the nutso Nero. This is the emperor who's in charge when Paul writes this letter. And in spite of nutso Nero, he says, be submissive to the authority over him and put your tax dollars there. So I say it from this in application, Bethel Church, say what you want about President so-and-so or Governor so-and-so or Supreme Court Justice so-and-so, none of them were as bad as Nero. None of them. Depending on which historical narrative you, uh, you believe to be true, this same Nero that Paul says that they are to be submissive to is likely the same Nero who gave the order to uh, cut off Paul's head. Same guy. Now, Paul didn't know that at the time. But this is the same emperor. And so there's kind of this argument, well, you know, I go along with the things that I like, and I, I, you know, I'm for the people that I like, but I'm not going to be submissive to people that I don't like in government. Paul was. He put his head down on that stone. Submit to governing authorities. There is not a lot of room here for personal preference. There's not a lot of wiggle room for political differences. Christian citizenship calls us to obey the laws of the land and the rulers of the land. And it's very quiet right here in the room right now. I don't know how it's at, uh, at home with you right now. Very quiet. But that's what it says. Okay, so that's the first duty of a Christian. Secondly, is to do what is good or to do what is approved by the governing authorities over us. Look at, would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Now, one of the things we often do as Americans, we like read the Bible in a, in a kind of American way, and so we assume that what Paul is saying here is that you know, in a, in a constitutional democracy like the one that we have, that, uh, you know, this is something that we are uh, to do. And so, therefore, if uh, the, a state senator in Indiana uh, sees you on the street and says, shine my shoes, you're going to go, I don't got to shine your shoes. We live in a democracy. But the first century, if the emperor saw you on the street and said, shine my shoes, you'd say, okay, do you want a pedicure as well? So these principles have to be understood in context. The point here is that doing good is equated here with doing what is approved by the authorities over us. Now, we're going to get into, in a couple weeks, is there any exceptions to that, okay? So you hold on. But see the principle clearly. Now, here's the third responsibility, and this is the, the I don't know, hard one to swallow, I would say, for, for many people. Pay your taxes, Again, strangely silent in the room here. Not a single amen on that one. Pay your taxes. Here's the text. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Again, let's go back to Jesus' question. He was asked, should we pay taxes or not? What did he say? Show me a Daenerys. Whose image is on the, on the Daenerys? Caesar's. 
Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. What do we take from that? Jesus' answer to the question, should we pay taxes to Rome, is yes, right? Yes, we should. Pay the taxes. Did you know that Jesus even paid taxes he didn't have to pay? I'm not gonna get into it, but if you go to read later, Matthew 17, he makes the argument that as the son of God, he shouldn't have to pay the temple tax. But he says, in order not to be offensive, let's go ahead and pay it anyway. He paid a tax he didn't have to pay as the son of God. So this relationship between church and state and between Christians and the state has always had a flashpoint, and generally speaking, it's on this point right here. It has to do with money, and it has to do with taxes. I remember years ago when I, I was an associate pastor in Indianapolis, there was a church in Indianapolis that all it was known for in the city was that's the church that doesn't pay taxes. And they told people not to pay taxes, and, and the state was like all the time at court with them and confiscating this or that. It was like the thing they were known for. We are the church, we stand against paying taxes. Not exactly something the church is called to do, especially in light of Romans 13. It's hard to argue the point, isn't it? We should pay our taxes. Now why do you suppose of all the things that government uh, requires of us, he would pick on paying taxes? And I hope you see the reason why is because of all the things the government asks us to do, this is kind of like the hardest thing, right? I mean, let's be honest. What is, the, what is our least favorite day of the year? April 15th, right? April 15th. Government officials, they love April 15th. It's their happiest day of the year. But as a citizen, generally speaking, April 15th, not our, not our favorite day, right? Sort of glad when that's all done. All that's figured out, money's sent in you know, good for a year. In ways, this is an argument from the greatest to the least. If we are required to do the thing that is our least favorite thing to do in submission to government authorities over us, then all the other things that are less onerous to us are also things that we are to do. I mean, he could have said uh, here, you know, uh, make sure that you wear your seatbelt. Make sure that you have a driver's license. You know, make sure that you stop at red lights. But he goes with pay your taxes, because if your heart is in submission to them on the hardest thing, then you're probably okay with all the other things as well. Now, does that mean that we should pay the maximum tax that we can? Like, I'm gonna find every loophole that increases the tax amount that I'm supposed to spend here. No. It doesn't mean that, okay? Caesar sets the tax rules. So we derive from that that tax avoidance is a stewardship issue and tax evasion is a, is, a, is a sin issue. Let me say that again. Avoiding taxes, tax avoidance is a stewardship issue. Uh, tax evasion is a, is a sin issue. And I say that because, let's be honest, the world that we live in or the country we live in right now, the tax code is unbelievably confusing. And it creates, I, over the years, I've had varying times where I haven't known what I'm supposed to do, and my conscience is involved, and how do I do this? I remember a few years ago, I had a situation where there was a tax ambiguity, and whether I went one way or the other on it, it was actually, for me, a large sum of money. And maybe you've been in a situation like that as well. You want to obey, but you're not sure what that means, and 
You don't want to overpay, but you don't want to underpay. We should see paying taxes that we owe here without seeing Romans 13 calling us to overpay the taxes or to pay taxes that Caesar says we don't actually owe. So here's my little principle. Let Caesar set the rules, okay? Let Caesar set the rules. You follow the rules that Caesar set, you're fulfilling Romans 13, and let those rules guide your conscience. I hope that's helpful for you. Now, you might say, I've never had a situation like, just wait, it's coming, you know, it's coming. Now, why should we do this? Why should we do this? And I said there are three things that we have to do, and there's two reasons that we have to do them. We're getting into the why now. Why support government that, if we look at it, so, so mishandles money all the time? Why give taxes to government that includes programs I frankly don't want a penny of my money going to? Why give money that is being handled by politicians who are so easily corrupted and seem to line their pockets with the tax money that we are sending in? Why should we do that? Well, here's why Paul says is that number one, all authority is a derived authority from God himself. Again, back to the text. Look at verse 13, or chapter 13, verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority, note, except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the human authority is resisting who and what God has appointed. And this is kind of a, this is a transformational truth, I think. To get in our minds and to understand that that government official, no matter where they are on the, on the, on the org chart, that they hold a position that has been instituted by God, and they are in that position by the sovereign hand of God. To see, to see God as the authority behind the authority. God is the authority in, sen- in a sense above the authority. And every lower authority is there by his divine decree. Now this is not to say that God is responsible for evil or the evil decisions that the a politician makes. He's not responsible for the, 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 the laws that the Supreme Court approves or doesn't approve. But the authority itself is from God. They have a delegated and a derived authority from God himself. And so the principle here is is that God is calling us to submit to the lesser authority, the human authority, as an act of worship to the ultimate authority and the source of that human authority. Did you get that? Did you know that paying your taxes is as much an act of worship as coming to church on Sunday? Why do I pay my taxes? Because I agree, I like it? No. I don't agree and I don't like it. But I love the God who is over that authority. And I worship him and I reverence him. And so I submit as an act of worship to God. Now this, re- we've got to retrain our minds, I think. To see that police officer. To see that sheriff. To see that local official, theologically, and to understand where their authority comes from. Now when you say, well, it comes from the consent of the, of the citizenship. Well, yes, in a sense, in this country that's true, but that's not true in North Korea, and that's not true in China, and that's not true in a lot of places of the world. All authority is from God. Train your mind and your heart to look at it that way. Now, this doesn't mean that our hope is in government. Oh, 
may it not be in government. This doesn't mean that, you know, that word submit in the other places that it applies uh, biblically, it doesn't mean that a wife's ultimate hope is in her husband or that church members should have their hope in their leaders or any other use of this word. It will be a very disappointed wife and a very disappointed church who puts their hope in the one that they're called to submit to. We do it, as Peter says, for Jesus' sake. Peter's admonition, for the Lord's sake. In other words, how we relate to earthly authorities is an act of worship to God's authority. And paying taxes, you know, as you're, as you're filling out your, uh, your check that you gotta send in, that number, however many zeros that are, that are in it, you know, most of us, as we're putting it in the mailbox, we're not going, hallelujah, 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 no. We are not breaking out in the hallelujah chorus. You know, it's a funeral dirge as we walk to the mail, you know, to the mailbox. We're just like, I can't believe I gotta do this. But this is where Romans 13 is such a help. Because now I can see, hey, you know what? I don't like this. I don't agree with it, but I love you, God, and I'm doing it as an act of worship to you. So this April 15th, you just roll out the Hallelujah Chorus, see if it helps you a little bit. (laughs) Along with paying taxes, we can include a host of other civic obligations which Caesars place upon us in some countries, including serving in the military, or meeting the educational needs of our children, or yes, even wearing a seatbelt. You say, I still am unconvinced. Well, let me give you the, here's the, uh, the kicker. Do you realize that Jesus submitted to earthly authority? Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, submitted to earthly authority. And God used this example of Jesus powerfully in my life. I'm gonna tell you the story here in a moment. But here's the situation, it's John 19. Jesus has been arrested, he has been beaten, he is now with Pilate, Pilate is interrogating him, Jesus is saying nothing to the questions that Pilate is asking. He is not uh, responding. Pilate points out to Jesus, do you not realize that I have authority to kill you or to set you free? And here is John 19, verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? And here's what Jesus says. You would have no authority, get it, over me unless it had been given to you from above. Get that? Jesus acknowledges that a worm human being had authority over him as the glorious second person of the triune God. Now here's the story of my life. Many, many years ago, pre-Bethel, a long time ago, I had a boss that, uh, he became my boss. And from the get-go, this guy had it out for me. 
And he, he didn't even hide the, the fact that he had it out for me very well, at least to me. <laughs> uh, I mean, he either wanted to take me down or he wanted to take me out. Anybody ever have a boss like that? Okay. Church staff, lower your hands right now, please. <laughs> he had it out for me. And I'll tell you, as a young man, I resented it. And in my heart, I could tell he was just trying to, you know, do this number to me. And I was like, oh, you can't do that to me. And so I fought him. And we had this kind of relationship for some time. And I remember it was a Christmas break. I was back home visiting my parents. And for whatever reason, I was reading John 19. And I came to this very verse where Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had come from above. And you ever have those moments where the Holy Spirit just like, <laughs> I had that, like my heart was pierced. And I realized that me fighting this guy was in reality me fighting God. And after the break, I met with him and I sat down with him, I confessed through tears, I confessed to him and I said, from this day forward, I'm gonna be the best employee you ever had. Now, I don't know how this applies to your life. We all got varying authorities that are, that are over us. Some we like, some we don't. Some we're for, some we're not. But can we train our eyes to see authority the way that Paul is urging us to see it as a derived authority from God and to trust God to be submissive as we can? This is God's will for us. Now we're gonna get into this uh, second point, which is going to explain another level of submission. You know, I remember when I, between uh, years in seminary, college, can't remember, I worked for like an electrician or I worked for a roofer. Now in saying that, I want all of you to know I know nothing about that, so don't help, ask me to help you with anything. Whatever I knew, I long, long since forgot. But uh, I noticed that, you know, on, do, on the roofing job with the other roofers, when the boss was there, we all were working hard. Moment the boss left, do, good do, good do, good do, you know. Or if you ever notice in PE class in high school or, or middle school, you know, the teacher would say, all right, I want you guys doing sit-ups and I gotta run to the office. PE teacher leaves. How vigorous are the sit-ups? Not very vigorous. Moment PE teacher comes back, everyone's doing sit-ups like crazy. Why is that? It's because many people miss the second reason to be submissive to authority that's over us. And that is for conscience sake. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, not only for the negative consequences that come from being disobedient to authority over us, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Okay, he, he, he connects the conscience with the tax bank. So why do we obey the laws and those that are over us? Is it just because I don't want punishment? Paul says that's actually one good reason to obey them, okay? You don't want to get punished, you do whatever they say is, is good and you'll be approved. But for the Christian who wants to please God, not getting caught and punished is merely the surface reason. For us, this is a matter of our hearts 
and it is a matter of our consciences. Now, we've seen conscience in Romans prior. Here's Romans 2. Here's a little definition of conscience. He's talking about the Gentiles here. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Okay, conscience. What is the conscience? Our consciences are that inner part of us that God, part of our imago Dei, part of our image bearing, placed within us that is a kind of moral compass within us. It is that thing inside that says what you're doing is right, what you're doing is so wrong. We all have it, the conscience. So what Paul does here regarding obedience to authority is he takes it from the outward and the known to the inward and what is known only to us. In other words, he takes it to the level of integrity. What's integrity? Integrity is who we are in the dark. Integrity is the us that nobody else knows. So to ask the question, let's say that, uh, you know, the government came out and they said, you know what, with COVID and everything, we're just so, we're scrambling and we've, we've redeployed the IRS and they're now going to be taking care of mowing at the national parks. Uh, and so for this tax year, there's actually, there will be no IRS agents and there'll be no IRS, but we're still sticking with April 15th. Who would pay their taxes? Rightly. I would like to think Christians would. Because for us, obeying the authority over us is not, I do it if I think I'll get caught, but if I don't think I'll get caught, then I'm not going to do it. No, it is a heart issue for us. It is an act of worship issue for us. This is a matter of integrity. Who we are when nobody is looking. Oh, wait a second, there's never a time in our life where nobody is looking because the eye of God is always upon us. As a Christian, I care, I care what the IRS thinks, I care what the governor thinks, I care what the president thinks, I care what the Supreme Court justice thinks, but more than all of these human beings combined, I care what God thinks, and I wanna please him. And therefore, all of this is on the level of worship. Now, does paying my taxes make me a Christian? No. Does respecting the authority of the police officer make me a Christian? No. Does uh, obeying the middle school principal make me a Christian? Or my boss? Or the church elder? Make me a Christian. No. Remember, Romans 13 is after Romans 12. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, uh, uh, by, in view of God's mercy, that you present your lives as a living sacrifice to God. This is all the application of what, God's, or what Paul says makes us a Christian, which is not obeying the authority that's over me. It is submitting my heart and my life in faith to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But that act of Repentance and faith has profound implications for the way that I live my life while I'm here on earth. It is that application that he is getting at here. And what does it look like? It looks like obeying the laws of the land that you live in. It looks like respecting those that are in authority over us. It looks like Christian citizenship that actively tries to do good in society. 
It looks like paying taxes. It looks like praying for whatever Caesar is over you. We submit to the one as an act of worship and love and devotion to the source of the authority. And so I just want to ask the question, you struggling today? So many of our problems are on this level of in the workplace or at school, somebody that God has over us, some authority that's, you know, saying what we have to do. It could be, you know, federal government or your HOA. I mean, we got problems on all kinds of levels. What, what are we called to do? Submit as an act of worship. Do we have to agree with it? No. Can we think it's stupid? Yes. There's so much stupid in the world right now. There's a lot in the tax law. I think it's stupid. Now, young people, pastors are allowed to use that word. You are not. But you know what we do? We pay it anyway. Why? I, I do it for Jesus. Do it for Jesus. You may not do it for the president, and you may not do it for the governor, but you can do it for Jesus. And that's the calling of Christian citizenship. So just to review, what is it that we're called to do? Three things. Submit to authority. Do what is civically good. Pay taxes and obey all the easier laws with that. Why do we do it? All authority comes from God for the sake of conscience as an act of worship. Now, I can't hear you, but I think I can hear you. Some of you are going, wait a second. There are exceptions to this, are there not? Where is the loophole for me? I'm searching for a loophole. Well, in reality, there actually, biblically, are a couple of loopholes with that that we're going to get into in future weeks. Some exceptions, but these exceptions are very, very rare. Pastor Steve, what are they? Well, you're going to have to keep coming. That's what that means. You're going to have to keep coming in order to find out. And the last thing I want to say is this. Government can organize society. Government can oversee society. Government can govern society. But it can't save anyone. So our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in what happens on election day. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our hope is in the perfect ruler of the universe, and he is on his throne right now. So if you're here today, I want to point you to Jesus, okay? To use a message on the role of citizens in, in government and point you to Jesus, and for you to see in him really the ruler that your heart has been longing for, the king, the president, the prime minister that your heart longs for, that perfect person over you. It is Jesus Christ who gave his life, died for you, raised on the third day, enthroned in heaven, coming again, future ruler of the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. Amen.